Blog Talk Radio. Driving all night, my hands wet on the wheel. It's talking in circles. There's a voice in my head that drives my heel. With your hosts, Clayton Caldwell. My baby calling till I need you here. And John Harlow. And it's a half past four and I'm shifting gear. Welcome to Talking in Circles. I am Clayton Caldwell with my co-host from SpeedwayMedia.com. John Harlow is going to bring you another great episode of Talking in Circles. Tonight we'll break down a Toyota Owners 400 from Richmond. It was Joey Logano's 18th career victory. He beat his teammate Brad Keselowski. Also, we'll talk about the commit line penalties. Is NASCAR at fault? Are the drivers at fault? Is it too much? Do we really need that many commit penalties? We really need to commit cone rule. Also, we'll discuss Kenny Hamlin's comments after the Toyota Owners 400 and Humpy Wheeler, the former uh, track president at Charlotte Motor Speedway, also had some interesting comments on his Facebook page about the Toyota Owners 400 and the attendance at that place. Plus, we'll take your phone calls, 907-889-8280. Join the conversation. But first, John, we'll talk about it. It was the Toyota Owners 400, Joey Logano's 18th career victory. Uh, Team Penske is is really in good shape right now. They really run very well. Um, anywhere they go, they seem like they can win. Logano goes out there, makes the chase for the fifth straight year by winning his 18th career Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series race at Richmond. John, what were your thoughts on that race? I think the most impressive thing with Joey Logano is he started at the rear of the field because he changed transmission the morning of the race. So the back of the field penalty isn't as bad as everybody thinks it is. He was a solid competitor all day. He ran great. He uh, was solid. He worked his way through the field. Good strategy with him and Todd Gordon. I think it was a great race for Logano, but he wasn't the best car on the track. Brad Keselowski was the best car on the track on uh, Sunday afternoon, but he just got caught when, I mean, just wasn't able to make it through whenever he took four tires uh, got caught back in the field. One of the things that I thought the Toyota uh, Owners 400 was a good race from fifth on back. There was some great racing in the pack, but once you got in clean air, nobody was getting near you. You were able to check out, and that's one of the problems NASCAR is running into. Once you're in the lead, nobody's coming close to you. Yeah, and and the thing is that Richmond, you know, this is a track where um, – it's a short track, but there's a lot more space because it's a wider short track. There's a lot more space here than it is. there is in a lot of places like Martinsville or even Bristol. Um, you know, so contact isn't really doesn't really happen that much. You can run three wide there in the corners pretty easily. Uh, and there were some drivers running different lanes all day long. Um, you know, some drivers were running the high lane, some were running the middle, some were running the low lane. So it made it a little bit difficult to pass. But you know, you just can't run run fender rub fenders anymore at these racetracks because of how aerosensitive they are. And, and again, you go a little bit to that as far as the front end, the front of the pack goes. I mean, um, you're right, clean air is an issue. It's always going to be an issue, especially when, um, you know, you're at a track like that where downforce is a big key. But I'll say this, you know, once you, the good thing is you left the field quick um, and you've got to work your, make, make your car be able to work through traffic. Um, at, at these short tracks because you can come up on these on this field very quickly, and uh, even though, like I said, there's not there's more space to move around at a place like Martinsville or Bristol, it's still a shorter track. It's not like the mile and a half where you can go four five wide, um, and 
you know, be spread out, you know, uh, seconds apart at the at this racetrack like you see at the mile and a half. So it's a little bit harder when we get the live traffic to to dissect this tra- these traffic. But you're right. I mean, Logano goes out there. You know, this 22 team, the two teams been rock solid all year long. The 22 team has seemed to to sort of like an, a sputtering engine where you start to see it and then they they kick it down. 21's been like that all year long where 21 showed a lot of speed early. But then they faded, and again it happened on Sunday to do a different issue. But it was good to see Logano, who needed this win to go out there and win it, John. I think it was came at the right time. Logano's been running great all year. He's had a couple hiccups here and there, but he's in the top ten in points. He was sort of locked into the chase, just wondering when that win was going to come. And it came on Sunday. Um, it's just shows, and I was listening to the morning drive earlier this week, they were asking, you remember back when it was everybody had to have a four-car team to be great. Everybody had to have a five-car team when Roush went to five. And then they cut it down to the max you could have is four. You look at it now, the two-car teams are running the best. I mean, Eric Jones was running great until he got cut off by Casey Kane, rubbed the fender into his wheel, blew a tire, and hit the wall. Martin mm-hmm. Truex is second in points. He's running fantastic. Eric Jones is running really good for a rookie. The two-car team of uh, Penske, uh, Team Penske with Keselowski and Logano, they're solid. They're both in the chase. The two-car team of Roush Fenway is growing. I mean, you look at Stenhouse, he pancaked the wall and came back and got a fourth-place finish out of it. Trevor Bain, right there close by the top ten, if he wasn't in the top ten. So, I mean, both the Roush Fenway cars are doing well. And you look at the four-car teams of Hendrick Motorsports. Junior's struggling. Kane's eh, struggling again. You have Chase Elliott running great. You have Johnson with two wins. But he's had great races, and he's had some crap races. Look at Stuart Haas racing. Boyer's been running great for that 14 car. They've turned the corner. Harvick's had his moments. Kurt Busch won the Daytona 500 and has been pretty much crap ever since until Sunday when he got a top 10 finish and Danica's out to lunch. So you got to wonder, is the two car team the way to go anymore? Yeah. And you talk about Ganassi too, another team that's been rock mm-hmm. solid all year long, two car operation. Um, it's interesting, no doubt about it. And, you know, I think we've seen a lot of teams sort of uh, scale back this year, even Richard Petty Motorsports, where they were a year ago compared to where they are now and their sole car operation. They had two cars, Last year with Brian Scott driving a 44, and now Eric Amarola is just in a 43 as a solo cooperation. They've scaled back, and they've run better. Sure, they've had some weekends where they've really struggled, but for the most part, the 43 seems to have a little bit more speed than they had a year ago. And you brought up a great point about Roush Fenway, and we'll get to them in a little bit. But, you know, another team that's struggling right now, John, is, is uh, Joe Gibbs Racing and the Toyota Camp. Again, we see Denny Hamlin. This is his hometown racetrack. Probably one of his best racetracks, if not the best racetrack, uh, in the cup circuit for him. He goes out there and runs a, has a solid day, runs third. Kyle Busch looks like he was going to be a chance to win that race, John, before commit calling penalty at the end. So uh, it looked like they could get off the snide. You had Daniel Suarez finishing in the 12th spot. Um, so in that kind of sat on the pole, it looked like they were in, in led 164 laps before he had to go to the rear for issues as well. It looked like they were going to get off the, the, the snide there a little bit, but here they are, you know, nine races into the 2017 season, and Joe Gibbs Racing is still winless 
as we head to Talladega. Are you shocked, as shocked as I am? I'm getting shocked. I mean, it's one of those ones, the competition is tougher now. I mean, there's a lot of really good teams, and a lot of the smaller teams have stepped up. I mean, Ganassi is the best they've ever run this year. They've never been close to running like this. Um, Roush Fenway is getting back into the mix. Um, you have the three teams from Stuart Haas who are somewhat competitive. You have two teams from Hendrick Motorsports that are competitive. And it seems like Ford has really upped their game. Doug Yates has found a ton of horsepower in those engines. Because if you look engine-wise, the Ford camp is right now, I wouldn't say head and shoulders above the field, but they're at least forehead above the field. Um, Hendrick's playing catch-up engine-wise, and Toyota seems to have lost a step. And if you look a couple years ago, when Toyota was out to lunch the first half of the year, it was like three years ago before, the year before Kyle Busch won the championship, Toyota was out the lunch first half of the year. Then about Charlotte, um, Dover, they started to get their game together. And then by the second half of the year, Joe Gibbs racing was leading laps, winning races and competitive throughout the season. I think this might be one of those things where Toyota kind of rested on their laurels a little bit. They thought they had everything good. Also, Toyota's working with a new nose, and Joe Gibbs Racing's trying to get eight cars ready to go to the field, while Furniture Row is working on their own cars on top of what they already get from Gibbs. Yeah, listen, I mean, and and I think when you look at Furniture Row, it does help. That's a cooperation. I definitely think, especially with the new nose, like you said. So, absolutely, I think it's a a um, a big deal. But you know, Joe Gibbs. They're a good team. They got a lot of resources. You have to wonder also they've got they got on the loop there of Carl Edwards. I think that kind of surprised them. Scott Graves was pushed into a role after six weeks in the season with a 19 car uh, that you know he wasn't expecting to have six weeks into a season. So that's a little growing pain. Suarez wasn't really exactly what I think Joe Gibbs Racing wanted as far as experience goes yet to move the cup, but he was kind of forced his hand to go in there as well. Um, so that's one car that would win on, on a consistent basis with Carl Edwards in it that has now a driver who's good but learning the ropes in the Cup Series. Um, so that's one less driver. Kyle Busch has seen a lot of issues come up, whether it was the Logano issue. Uh, you know, I believe it was Phoenix when they got in a, in a fight with Logano or Las Vegas uh, where they got together there. It just seems like look, every time we get close to the end of a race, something happens to Kyle Busch where he's running really good and he, all of a sudden he has to go to the rear this weekend. It was a commit cone penalty. He's had a couple of blown tires by Goodyear this year. It's just been kind of a, a bad luck year for Kyle Busch. And he's been the best car at Joe Gibbs Racing as far as speed is concerned. He might not have the finishes to back it up, but he's been the best car at Joe Gibbs Racing as far as speed is concerned. 917-889-8280 if you want to join the conversation on Talking Circles. You brought up Rash Fenway earlier. I tell you what, I was really impressed with Ricky Stenhouse Jr. this weekend. Goes out there, like you said, bounces it off the wall qualifies fourth, has a solid weekend, finishes in a fourth spot. Roush isn't in a place where they can win races yet. I don't think. I think they get them to make that next step. But, John, they're head and shoulders about where they were last year uh, at this time with a three-car operation. And you have to wonder, I think Stenhouse is closer than Bain to winning a race. You have to wonder um, when that situation will go because right now it seems like they're getting closer and closer to victory. 
Oh, I really believe so. I think Ricky Stenhouse Jr. has a really good shot at winning a race this year. And if you look at it last year, uh, Roush Fenway was 20 to 25th place cars on most weekends. If they were in the top 20, it was a good weekend for them last year. And I don't think dropping from three cars to two made that much of a difference. I think they totally redid the engineering staff. They redid the way they're doing their cars. And they went for young blood. I mean, Robbie Reiser in the early 2000s was a great crew chief. A lot of things have changed in the last 17 years. Jimmy Fennig was a great crew chief in the early 2000s, 90s. A lot of things have changed since Jimmy Fennig was really competitive on top of the box. And those were two of the guys who were leading the way at the Roush shop. Now they've got some young blood in there that are trying new things, adapting to younger drivers, because Stenhouse Jr. and Trevor Bain aren't Matt Kenseth, Mark Martin, Jeff Burton, Greg Biffle, and uh, Carl Edwards. They are young guys coming up, and what they know is what they feel. It's not like they've gone through three different sets of cars like those other guys did. They know this car, and they haven't felt comfortable in them. And that's one of the things that Stenhouse said after the race is this is the thing. He's finally starting to get to the track, and when they roll off the truck, he feels comfortable in the car. And that's something they haven't had in a while. And that's where it makes a difference. Yeah, and I tell you, it's – you know Stenhouse can win in, in NASCAR. He's proven that in the Xfinity Series, won two championships. Um, you know, Bain has, has got the Daytona 500, and, you know, he hasn't had as much success in Xfinity as Stenhouse had, but they got two young drivers there. Sort of a rebuild, you know, I saw a feature on this week where they were like, hey, we can't believe we're the only two guys here at Rush Fenway because when we got here, all the names you mentioned were there, and it was like, wow, now we're the only two that are kind of left and um, a lot of teams kind of ducked their head away. But I think, you know, from Roush Fenway, a lot of his drivers did. But I think you're right, John. They focus a lot more on engineering. Give credit to Ford as well because Ford could have sat there and said, you know, we're going to focus on Stuart Haas. We're going to focus on Team Penske, teams that are really running good. We'll kind of leave Roush in the dust. Ford came out earlier and before the year and said, no, 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 we want Roush Fenway to be where they, where they were. We want Roush Fenway to get back and be competitive again. So they kind of gave them the, the resources they're giving them the resources and the funding behind them to help them uh, improve. And it seems like they're taking that step in the right direction, no doubt about it. Um, are they all the way back yet? Absolutely not. But you've got to be pleased if you're a Roush Fenway fan from what you saw on Sunday afternoon at Richmond International Raceway. And like I said, you know, uh, I think Stenhouse even bounces off the wall. It seems like one of those two drivers, no disrespect to them, bounces off the wall, whether it's in practice or qualifying or the race, every week. Um, but they always seem to end up pretty good. Bain finishes seems like between 10th and 15th every week. Um, and that results pretty well in your point standing. So um, absolutely. I think it was a, a solid weekend for Roush Fenway racing. Interesting stuff, John, this week was with the commit line penalties. Uh, you know, we saw quite a couple of teams. Kyle Busch in particular was the most notable. He seemed very disappointed about it. And, you know, I, I understand the commit cone rule, under the caution flag, because you kind of want to, you kind of want to, uh, you know, take away the shenanigans from teams. That, that's what it seems used to wait till the last second. And then we had accidents, and it was shenanigans. It was craziness. But I don't understand it under green. That's where I have a problem with it. Why do we need a commit line under the green flag? Uh, to me, that's just going to cause more incidents. What are your whole thoughts on this on this commit cone violation, John? I miss the orange cone. I really do. <laughs> 
if you are trying to get off the track and you're trying to look at your digital dash to make sure no red lights are on, you're trying to put the brakes on, you're trying to avoid any cars in front of you, are you looking for a 4 by 4 piece of orange paint on pavement? Because after going around in that circle for 300, 400 laps, it kind of gets monotonous, and you may lose that orange piece of paint. At least the cone was a physical object that you could run over, and you knew if you were okay or not. I mean, if you, if you hit the cone, you lost. Now you've got a 4 by 4 uh painted strip on the entrance to pit road. But the one thing I was listening to Harvick a little bit last night, and he said they played a video in the driver's meeting. They went over it in the driver's meeting at every short track so far. And people are still getting bit by it. I mean, Harvick, he said flat out to Boyer, he said, you know, you missed it. He said, yeah, I know. He was trying when he got the two car, two wheels on the on the uh, orange paint. I think the person who should be ticked off more than anybody is Martin Truex Jr. because he was trying to get around the uh, uh, safety truck that was right there in the way. So he goes around the safety truck instead of hitting it or hitting somebody else and ends up going over one tire on the commitment paint square and wound up going backwards as well. I mean, as – even though Kyle Busch was ticked off at the end of the race and they asked him what he thought about it, he said balls and strikes. That was a ball and strike. If you hit the orange paint, it's a strike. You go to the back. If you go around it, it's a ball. Keep playing. And it, it, to me, it's just, again, I understand under caution. I get why they do it. But under the green flag, and I know why they don't have a cone at Richmond. Obviously, it, it's very close to the racing surface uh, where the where the – box is compared to the racing surfaces. It's very, very close. And you could probably hit the cone literally every, if the cone was standing there, literally every time you got coming in at turn four. But don't like it under the green flag. I just think it's it's unnecessary. Um, and you could say, well, maybe that's where we start. You know, the driver should start slowing down. But, you know, the way I look at it is if I'm coming in and I'm hot, all of a sudden I, I miss pit road, you know, I could cause an accident just because I don't want to fall a lap, it, just because I don't want to lose time because of the commit cone penalty where I could have just saved it and kept it, you know, normal. I just think you're causing more issue, more harm than good if you do it under the green flag. Again, I get it under caution, but, man, it's just, to me, I don't, I know it's it's uniform now. That's what Scott Miller said after the race that they're trying to make it uniform for every racetrack, which makes sense to me because it's, it is stupid to have different rules, different racetracks, but maybe it's necessary at certain places. Um, you know, there's a cone, one place cone. There's a reason why there's a cone. There's not a cone at Richmond is because it's a short track. Um, maybe a short track, you can do something different than you do at mile and a half. I don't think that's too confusing for these drivers, especially if you explain it like you did in the driver's meeting. Um, but you know, drivers are going to play shenanigans. Logano definitely played a shenanigan at that last pit stop to Kyle Busch. Um, but to me, ultimately what this does, John, it just takes away from the actual racing and competition on the racetrack. Uh, that, I, that I love and I know you love, the competition, the passing under green flag conditions, it ultimately takes away from that. And it sort of gets into a another one of NASCAR fans' 
what they hate is just there's too much too many rules right now, and that's just another rule that is sort of creeps up that NASCAR fans don't really like that takes away from the quality of racing. It would have been awesome, awesome. I think it would have been a great race to watch Kyle Busch go after Joe Logano there at that last restart. And because he didn't get his line, his tires under the commit line, we get deprived of that finish. That, you know, that doesn't really sit that well with me, John. I think it's one of those ones where we've talked about it before when it comes to lug nuts, when it comes to post-race inspection, going through the laser. Um, the rule book is put together for a reason. And it's not like NASCAR sitting up there in the Grand Palace anymore saying, here's the rules. A lot of times the rules are put it together with the crew chiefs and drivers having a say in it anymore. And they knew it was there. They showed them a video before the race that it was there. And it's a ball and strike call. Yeah, it would have been a great finish to see Kyle Busch up there with Brad Keselowski and Joey Logano battling for it at the end. It would have been nice to see Martin Truex up there battling for it at the end, or Clint Boyer, who was a top 10 car all day long and wound up outside of the top 10 because he hit commitment line. But it's the rule. And it's not like, same as baseball, the mound is 60 feet, 6 inches from home plate, but if I decide I'm going to pitch from 55 and they don't call a balk on me, what's to say I'm not going to move up to 50 feet? It's the same way with the speeding penalties on pit road. I mean, most of those rules are put in for safety of the drivers, the crew. And, I mean, if you look from that commitment code to the last stall on pit road, it's maybe 50 feet. And if somebody makes a mistake there and somebody's trying to get out there to pit their car and the car's spinning and hit somebody and we kill somebody, I'll take the orange paint and the penalty and somebody depriving us of a really great finish than losing a life on pit road. Oh, I get that, and again, I think under the caution flag to me it makes a lot of sense. I don't, I just, I, you know, you can't explain it to me under green flag. I just, but I, I believe all the penalties were under caution. Right, right, and and but we did see. I think we saw one or two creep up during during the uh, green flag conditions. But I understand it under the caution flag. I get that. You know, we saw. I remember before we even had this rule. You know, teams would wait till the last second to pull out, and then we had, you know, accidents or somebody getting hit, an innocent car getting damaged because somebody was trying to be, you know, just uh, clever on pit road, I guess you can call it. So I totally get that, and I understand why it was instituted. Uh, it's just, you know, like I said, it's just one of those things where if you're a NASCAR fan and you like the quality on-track racing and that's all you care about, you know, you sit there and go, another rule kind of deprives me of a good finish. You could look at it that way for sure. Let's look at the points here real quick before we move on, John, to other topics, including Denny Hamlin's comments uh, about Richmond, and then we're going to go to Humpy Wheeler's comments about Richmond. But first, let's talk about the points here really quick. Um, you know, right now, there's. let's just think about the chase here. There's a, obviously a few guys who um, you could argue are a little bit of trouble here as far as, it, as the playoffs are concerned, we're not allowed to call it chase right now. Um, you know, and it's crazy because one win changes everything. But when you look at a guy like, let's just bring up a man who was very popular this weekend because of his retirement announcement, Dale Earnhardt Jr. sits 24th in the standings. He is way out of the chase. Uh, 52 points right now out of the chase. A whole race 
out of the playoffs as far as 16th place goes. You got Paul Menard back there with him, AJ Allmendinger back there with them. Now Earnhardt's a very, very uh, popular pick this weekend at Talladega. Allmendinger's good on the, on, the, on the, uh, road courses, but are you at all concerned if you're 20th on back? Even Casey Kane. Let's talk about Casey Kane. You know, Casey didn't make the chase last year. Didn't make the chase the year before. Barely made it the year before that. Um, and he sits right now, you know, just a little bit outside the chase in 20th. But are you at all concerned if you're one of these drivers? I mean, there's 200 motorsports cars right now sitting outside the chase, John. And the 200 motorsports cars that are sitting outside of the chase haven't run for diddly squat all year long. Um, Kane has been more consistent than Junior, but Junior's been terrible. And he'll be the first one to tell you they've been terrible. And there's no light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, one of the if you look at some of the stuff that's out there, if he doesn't win at Talladega, will he ever win again? That's one of the questions that people have been asking. I don't think um, Junior has what it takes this year. I don't think he's got it in him. I think he's got enough to get back in the car, but I don't think he's fully committed to putting his car in that extra position where he needs to, to get a, get a little bit ahead of time or he's, or the car is just so far out to lunch that him and Greg Ives have no clue what they're doing. Uh, Kane just has been, there's always been one car at Hendricks Motorsports. It's almost like the test car or the jinx car. And it seems like it's a five since Casey Kane walked into the shop there. He went there with all kind of great hopes. I mean, Mark Martin took that car to a second place finish in points right before Kane got in it, but they've been eh, nothing great since they've been yeah. there. I mean, Kenny Francis was with them forever and now they've moved um, to his new crew chief and it's been nothing special out of that five car. And I don't see where it's going to come from. If Junior doesn't win at Talladega or Daytona, he's not making the playoffs. That is a given because he has not run for anything at the mile and a half, and the short tracks have been even more of a problem. Yeah, he's got to get chase points, I think, or uh, stage points, excuse me, this weekend at Talladega. I think he has to. And, you know, I was discussing with one of our callers, Lee from Virginia, this week. It's going to be an interesting scenario, even if he get points his way in, because this is a guy who I think a lot of people want to see win the championship if you're part of Junior Nation. And he, if he doesn't win a race uh, or finish in the top 10 in points, he's not going to get the extra bonus points that go towards the, the playoffs. So he's missing out on that, and that could put him in a little bit of a hole as far as the playoffs are concerned. But you brought up a very interesting figure, John, and Casey Kane. Um, you know, when he first got to the Hendrick Motorsports in 2013, it looked like things were heading in the right – yeah, it looked like things were headed in the right direction – there in 2012 when he first got to Hendrick Motorsports, finished fourth in the standings, had two wins, 19 top 10 finishes, 12 top fives. It looked like everything was going well. His first two years, Hendrick, were really good. The last three have been bad, to say the least. And he's not also a very good start this year. You know, when you think about Kane, you think about the Bristol's, the Richmond's, places where he really runs good, and they didn't finish. They weren't anywhere close the last couple of weeks. So uh, a little alarming. We saw a nice fourth-place finish run from him at Atlanta, but that's it this year. There's only other top 10s Daytona. Uh, other than that, he's got two, three 20th-place 20th place finishes 
a 14, a 38, and a 22nd. That's not going to get it done at Hendrick Motorsports. So uh, another puzzling start to the year for Casey Kane. This is a guy who I think a lot of people said, hey, when he when Rick Hendrick hired him, you remember Rick Hendrick hired him a year before he even got in the car. Mark Martin was saying, you know what, this is going to be my final year running again full time. And uh, Rick Hendrick sort of said, I want Casey Kane. That's my guy. Went and got him. It's been a little bit disappointing, especially in the last three years there at Hendrick Motorsports. And you got to wonder what's going on. Keith Robin, they brought him over from the one team uh, to be the crew chief. He was an engineer, Casey Kane. When when Kane first got underwent his struggles, it looked like, well, maybe it was Keith Rodden because Keith Rodden was the engineer there, and he left to go to Jamie McMurray and be a crew chief. So they brought in Rodden again, and it just hasn't meshed well. Um, and you got to wonder how long they can keep Keith Rodden there without making a major adjustment because Kane's got a fought one year left on his contract after this year. And then, you know, you're going to start to hear if, if Byron doesn't replace Dell Jr. in the 88 this year, you're going to start to hear William Byron's name come up more and more about that five car. I think a lot of people, when Rick Hendrick made that hire, went out and got William Byron from the Toyota camp, said, well, he's going to be there to eventually replace Casey Kane. If Casey Kane wants to stay in his ride, you know, maybe he puts a little pressure on and say, hey, we need to make a change here and figure out what's going on because what we've been doing the last couple of years hasn't worked. Um, but, yeah, if I'm, if I'm Casey Kane and those guys back there, I'm a little concerned, no doubt about it, I think, Austin Dillon, another driver who's had a, an interesting year. A lot of crazy stuff uh, come up, you know, where he had a, he didn't even start the race at Texas Motor Speedway. This weekend he had to start from the rear because he missed inspection at Bristol. Just an odd way to start his year as well. Suarez is a rookie. Ty Dillon is a rookie. So those guys getting back there from 20th on back, I'm getting a little nervous, no doubt about it. Um, your final thoughts, John, from the weekend at Richmond before we move on to Denny Hamlin and uh, I'll be Wheeler's comments. Um, I'd like to see NASCAR find a way, and the magic word is in Humpy Wheeler's part, is get rid of arrow push and you'll have passing at the front. They had some great racing from third on back all weekend long. There were three, four wide in the back. They were doing everything can they could to get toward the front, but once you got there, you couldn't get to the front. Whoever was leading was leading. I mean, you look, Matt Kenseth, led the entire first stage in the first 30 laps of the second stage. And then Kozlowski got to the front and started making moves. But, I mean, it it looked like it was going to be a stinker because it looked like Kansas was going to just stink up the show and lead all the laps. I think back-in-the-pack racing has been really good throughout the season. They just haven't figured out the front. Now it's 7889 If you want to join the conversation here on Talking Circles, Lee from Virginia joins the show tonight. Hey, Lee, what do you want to talk about? Hello, guys. I was interested in your uh, talk there and the assessment of Richmond. I thought John hit the nail right on the head. I saw a lot of com- uh, commentators and people that work for ISC, obviously, and, motor- and NASCAR and-, and MRN Radio, saying, what else do you want in a race? Well, I thought the first part of that race was, was a snooze fest, and I thought Kenseth was going to run away with it. Now, John, you're absolutely right. They've done a tremendous job with the with the infield racing, the racing that goes on behind the leader where, you know, with, I think the stages has added some major, major storylines to that part of the racing, but the leader still gets too far out front. Um, you guys think, and I, I, you know, Clayton, I don't think you'd know the answer to this, but I'm sure I'm all, I know I'm all for it. I'm hearing that there could be, in the future here, a front valence coming back and getting rid of the splitter, and that might do away with some oh. of the arrow push. What do you guys think of that, man? Please. Please. I mean, I, I think anything we can do to continue to uh, eliminate downforce and just 
you know, get these cars back to where they can race. I think the splitter is sort of to keep the cars on the ground and, and not make them flip. Um, but, hey, I, I'd be all for a front balance. How about you, John? I'm for anything that makes the racing good. Uh, the splitter, I mean, when you're driving your car, that's po- and they did everything they can to make these cars look like uh, show cars anymore. I don't have a, I mean, my wife's car does not have a splitter. I don't think there needs to be a splitter on the NASCARs. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. I think it was great when they had the valence on there. Um, the other thing I wish they do is I wish that when they took the horsepower away by putting the tapered spacer in, I wish they'd give it back to them. Because I don't think, I think you give them more horsepower and take away the downforce even more, makes it even more tougher to drive. And if you if everybody has the same amount of horsepower, it's tough to pass as it is. I mean, you mm-hmm. look at some of the, from start to finish in most races, the first 30 cars are under seven-tenths of a second of each other. So once they get going in a pack, I mean, everybody's running the same speed. How are you going to pass? Hey, it's a great point. Um, and I think it leads us to our next topics, uh, where you can kind of sort of combine them into one, where, guys, it was scary, the the attendance at Richmond, and, and personally, when I was watching the race, I didn't take, I didn't notice it, but an article came out immediately following the race Monday morning about the attendance at Richmond. 30,000 people were, it was the estimated crowd. This was a place that used to have 120k to go at Richmond. Lee, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is it something that NASCAR should be concerned about? Uh, the ratings have, have gone down. You know, we sort of have stage racing this this year because of lackluster ratings. Attendance at Richmond, it seemed like the vibe in the NASCAR community this week was sort of panic. Where do we go next? Because they really weren't sure because the attendance at Richmond was that bad. Well, I think everybody was panicked because I think initially everyone thought attendance would spike with Dale Jr.'s announcement. I think everybody said, okay, well, Fans are going to come out to the track and they're going to buy tickets because they're going to want to see Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s final season. And I thought we'd think, I think everybody thought, even if we didn't see a little bit of an uptick in, or a great uptick in attendance, we'd see something uh, that, that looked better than what we're used to seeing, and that looked worse. I don't know if you guys saw the Xfinity Series race on Saturday, but you could have held a viewing party in my living room, and there would have been more people in, in, in for that than there was in the Xfinity Series race at Richmond on Saturday. Um, just very disappointing and i know everybody you know you'll hear people say oh well what do the fans care about how does that affect your viewing of the race it doesn't but i'm telling you right now if you work inside the sport or if you're even if you're a fan it does have to concern you because you wonder how bad is it going to get because i think we all were expecting an uptick i think we all were expecting something that we didn't get on sunday with dale jr's announcement and i'm hoping that you know i know dale jr's announcement was on tuesday and richmond ran on sunday and it's there's four, what is there, five days between there where people can't change their vacations and whatnot. I'm hoping that at, at Talladega, and it's Talladega, so you can't judge it because everybody goes there anyway. And it's Dale Earnhardt Jr. country. I'm hoping at Talladega in the future here, now that people know and, it, and can change their vacations and base their vacations around it, maybe we'll see a more, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a upwards in attendance because if we don't, boy, there's something, you know, we got to do. And listen, they've just announced the MMA fighting thing at the All-Star Race. You know, five years ago, guys, I don't know about you guys, but I would have been totally against that. I'm all for it right now. Anything to bring people to the racetrack, I'm all for it at this point because it is that bad. I can tell you flat out, guys, um, I used to live in Hampton Roads, Virginia, before I moved up here to the Boston area. 
And I would go to both Richmond races. And to me, the best ticket you could get your hands on back then was Friday for Richmond. Because you had two cup practices, two Xfinity practices, cup qualifying, Xfinity qualifying, and the Xfinity race in the same day. You were watching cars go in circles from 10 o'clock in the morning until 11 o'clock at night. And there was 45, 50,000 there for the Xfinity race on Saturday, I mean, on Friday. And for the cup race on Saturday night, it would be 100,000. You'd have to get there at 2 o'clock in the afternoon to find yourself a parking spot for the 7.30 race. And it was a great race. It was a great crowd. I mean, my seats used to be 23 rows up at the start-finish line. I live up here now, so I don't have those seats anymore. But it was a great race to go see. There was racing everywhere. And I think moving it to a day race in Virginia – when it's starting to hit May, because Virginia's already in the 70s, 80s by then, you're looking at the fair weather fans. I mean, you're looking at drawing new people in. And if I could sit my ass in air conditioning and watch the race, or if I could sit my butt on metal bleachers and having somebody cursing right beside me and some drunk passing out on the other side, it takes you a half hour to go to the bathroom because the line's so damn long. I'm going to sit in my house and drink a beer on my couch in the air conditioning and watch a race. It's just that flat-out simple. It's a great point, John, and it it kind of reiterates what Danny Hamlin said after Sunday's race. And I'll direct quote. It's uh, sort of a USA Today website. Uh, Hamlin said, quote, it's 90 degrees and coverage on TV is pretty excellent. So it's tough to sit in the bleachers when it's 90. But who knows? I think that there's more to it than than just people not watching NASCAR. I think sports in general are way, way down. Attendance is down in a lot of sports, other sports as well. It's just viewing sports is different now than what it's ever been. Here's the interesting part to me. He says, quote, people with smartphones, they're watching races and they're watching games in the back of their car going up the highway. You don't have to attend these races anymore. You get such a good experience through your cell phone. So the way we measure attendance and measure TV ratings and all that, it's always been skewed because we live in a different world now. And, folks, um, I thought a very interesting comment, and I'll say this. Listen, I just downloaded the new NASCAR Race View app. I just purchased it. Uh, unbelievable. I mean, if you, if you guys don't know what it is, I don't know if John or Brandon have experienced, or John and Lee have experienced it or not, um, but it's unbelievable. And so when he brought that point up, I said, that's a very good point because, you know, I I love racing, so I will go to any race at any time. But for the casual fan, you bring up a good point. Sitting at home, I don't have to travel anywhere. The ticket prices are outrageous. The hotel prices are even worse. Why would I go to the race when I can watch it on my, on my smartphone? I can go out maybe do something, go to lunch with the wife, uh, have an early dinner with the wife, and still follow it along on my phone. I don't have to watch it on TV. Uh, I think all that plays a factor in it, Lee. What are your thoughts? Well, I don't know if you guys are familiar. I know I'm a huge baseball fan, and I know I know you are, Clayton. The MLB.com app. I, I use I use this as an example. You know, tonight the Yankees are playing. The Yankees are my team, and they're playing the Blue Jays. And I was out tonight. Instead of watching the game, I just had the app, and it kept updating me. It updates me every single time each team scores. I can follow the game along, follow along the game. I don't need to listen to it, and I don't need to watch it. 
And I think with social media and the apps and all that, there's no question we're change, it's changing the way we are viewing sports. To me, though, guys, the difference is that's making money for Major League Baseball. And, that, and the teams are getting that money. You're wondering why, or how are all these teams spending all this money with empty seats every single week? You know, Yankee Stadium's half, probably a quarter full right now. How are these teams making all this money? Because all the MLB.com app money, and it happens in a lot of sports, goes back to the teams. That doesn't happen in NASCAR, and that's a huge thing. I think if we saw that and we saw how much money they'd be making off the apps, and it went back to the teams, and whether it was in the race purses or in, or in another sharing form, I think you'd see a totally different sport. And I think you could see something that, you know, it wouldn't rely as much on sponsorship. But I just think that because of that, we don't know. And NASCAR keeps everything so close to their vest. We don't even get to see TV ratings. Oh, we do get to see TV ratings. We don't even get to see attendance numbers and all that anymore. They keep everything so close to their vest that we will never know how much money they make off the app. So we could sit here and talk about attendance and TV all we want. And you know what? It's outdated, and that's, you know, that's old school, all of that stuff. But we don't have anything else because NASCAR won't let us know about it. One of the things that 10 years ago, I wasn't married. I would sit every Sunday and either go to the race or watch it on TV. Because whenever I grew up in Pennsylvania, I'd go to Pocono twice a year. I'd go to Richmond twice a year. I used to go to Rockingham. And I would go to Dover twice a year. So I would do seven, eight races a year. And then every now and then I'd do a one-off, like we went to Daytona for the uh, the night race with 4th of July weekend. Or now I come up here to New Hampshire, went to Indy once. But that isn't there anymore. I have a wife and two kids. I don't have four hours to sit and watch it. Every now and then I'll catch it Monday afternoon on FS1 or Monday morning on FS1 before they start the regular programming when they do the, the rerun of it. Or I can catch up with everything by just looking at NBC or NASCAR talk on NBC sports or looking at motorsport.com or looking at speedwaymedia.com or looking at Jayski. I could find out everything that happened in the race without watching it and stay in four. Good point. I mean, I'm, I could be honest with you, Saturday, Sunday is probably the longest I watched a race this year because the wife and kids were out. So I got about 100 laps of it in. But I was also doing yard work. I was also uh, cooking on the grill. But I know everything that happened in the race because everything is there for me to see. Um, the big problem of it anymore is, and you were talking about other sports there, Lee, you look at Fenway Park. It's an event to go to Fenway. People love the idea of going to Fenway. The same way people love the idea of going to Wrigley. They are events. And they put on 81 events a year at these two ballparks. And most of them are 90% capacity or higher. These places get two chances to put on an event. And they put on the event the best they can. But lately, I mean, we've talked about this for the three years I've been part of this show, the product has sucked. The product is not that good. No matter how many people on MRN, Fox, NBC keep telling you how good the product is, it's not. It is not that good. There's no passes for the lead. You get close, you either have to knock somebody out of the way, or you're just going to ride in second because you just can't overtake the leader. There's something in the car that has changed over the past few years 
that is totally for for the worse, not for the better. It's it, listen. It's a fair point. Um, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about Humpy Wheeler's comments in a second because he brought up basically what you were talking about uh, that you know Arrow push and, and a lot of it's got to do with Arrow and he's had had a long rant. If you missed it on his Facebook page, a long rant about it. Uh, and he discussed a lot of different things, but he basically said that. Arrow push is something about these cars. Enable the lead car when you get into open air to continue to take to take an insurmountable lead. Um, and he's right. Listen, I think that, that is something that we need to look at aerodynamically. I would love to see, you know, Lee brought it up earlier as far as a uh, valence on these cars. I'd like to see him sort of go back to that. Um, but, listen, it's, I think, a little alarming because, Lee, are you a little worried that, you know, let's let's be real here. A lot of NASCAR's money comes from T, the TV deal, um, and if the ratings aren't there, and the ratings continue to to fall, you got to wonder what this next TV deal is going to look like. Um, and then what that what is that going to do? Um, so, I think we sort of need a change in approach here. You know, to me, if everybody's staying home and you're watching on your smartphone. To me, we have to make these races more interesting on the racetrack. How do we do that? I think we got to go – instead of going to these tracks that are monstrosities, instead of going to, you know – listen, and Daytona – I'm not talking about Daytona because Daytona's Daytona. But they just put $400 million into that place. Do we really need to be making these racetracks stadiums if nobody's going to be showing up? Why don't we go to racetracks that are racy? Look at Atlanta. The drivers rant and rave about Atlanta Motor Speedway and the ability to pass there. We go there once a year. Darlington always puts on a good good show. We go there once a year. Those ways we would sell well on television, but we go there once a year because of they don't draw well anymore. Nobody, well, newsflash, nobody's drawing well anymore. I think we need to sort of look at it in a different way and say, what's going to sell our product on TV best? Can we see some, some you know, not even beating and banging, but leaning on a fender a little bit? pushing people out of the way a little bit, passes for the lead. Short tracks might be able to do that more. You know, but I say that, Lee, and one of the three short tracks on the NASCAR schedule has started this conversation because of a small crowd at Richmond. What do you make of all this? I think we need a floating schedule. I think we need to take, you know, Kevin Harvick, I don't know if you guys listen to Happy Hours, but last night he said something very interesting. He was talking about Phoenix International Raceway. And he said, you know, they have no choice but to do this upgrade between the seasons because it's actually longer between races to do it but to do it now. And he said, but wouldn't it be great if Phoenix could take their date and lease it somewhere and then buy themselves the whole year to do the upgrade rather than do it in, in stages? Wouldn't that be great if they could go lease it to, you know, let's just say South Boston Speedway? Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be great if they could go lease that date somewhere? I think that would be great. I think it would be great for the sport. I think, you'd, I think not only would you energize the sport, I think you'd energize a fan base in that area that I'm sure that, you know, listen, there's no question. The sport's gotten very uh, corporate, very, you know, it, it, was, it was about the working man back in the day 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and it's gotten away from that a lot. And I think a lot of people have been very upset with NASCAR. You know, 
Uh, I remember somebody talking years ago saying, okay, well, you know, when Darlington brings the race back on Labor Day weekend, you're going to get 80% of the fans back, but 20% of them are still going to be standing there with a middle finger in the air at NASCAR saying, how dare you took this away from us to begin with? And I understand that. I understand their point. There's a lot of fans that are angry with NASCAR for a lot of the things that they've done. And they've earned it. NASCAR has earned every single one of that. But if they could go back to another market like that or anywhere across the country, another short track outside of these major markets, I think you'd energize that fan base again and maybe bring some people back to the racetrack. Because right now, it's one of those deals where people in Richmond, there's other things to do in Richmond. There's other things to do in Charlotte. You know, you're going you're gonna to see back-to-back weekends here in Charlotte. I guarantee you the crowd is going to be dreadful there in Charlotte. No question. And the John, All-Star race, the it used to be, you couldn't get anybody to get, you could not get a ticket to the All-Star race back in the day. And since they've changed 50 different formats and 40 different ways to get everybody they want in there, they're getting 35,000, 40,000 for the All-Star race. I remember when I used to go to Dover, we used to have a group of us from central Pennsylvania. We called themselves ourselves the Dover Millionaires. We actually bought three school buses, and we would we made bunk beds in it. We put 50 guys in there, and we would go every fall race. And there was 100,000 people at Dover, and the racing was great. Now Dover is follow the leader. You get a couple crashes off of turn two that's going to take six or seven guys out at a time. But you pretty much know going in, somebody who qualified in the top five is going to win at Dover. The racing is the tra- the car is the problem. If they get the race, I mean, you look at Indy when they had the tire debacle, they were still getting two hundred thousand fans in at Indy. Now they're lucky if they're getting sixty five. You're right. Has the schedule gotten scale? Has the schedule gotten stale, John? I mean. I did this research last night because I was curious. Um, the last short track NASCAR added to the Cup schedule was a track called Mayer Speedway in Houston, Texas, in 1971. That was the last short track we've added to the Cup schedule. You know, we've run at different short tracks. Obviously, North Wilkesboro. We ran at Nashville till '84, North Wilkesboro till 1996, but. We haven't added a short track in that long. Is it time to sit there and say maybe give Iowa a chance? Has this schedule gotten stale, John? I think there's too many mile and a half. I think there's too many places where they've tried to go twice. Uh, One of the things that I still get a kick out of is – we were doing a project whenever I went to school at uh, Fort Leavenworth and we talked to the folks at Kansas Speedway and they told me they could run both races, not sell a ticket, not sell a hot dog, not sell anything, pay the purse and still make a profit because they have a casino right outside of turn two. NASCAR is making money hand over fist everywhere. They need to find the right way to do things and I don't think the mile and a half's always been the way to do it. But the problem they have is they ran themselves out of the Rockingham, which was a phenomenal race. But it got to the point where it was too tough to get there. The infrastructure around Rockingham wasn't great. The hotel situation around Rockingham's impossible, the same way it is with Bristol. I mean, you want to get a hotel on Bristol weekend, it's probably about 500 bucks a night. The Iowa Speedways would be nice, but they've gotten to the point where, at one point, 
if they couldn't put 100,000 people in there, they didn't want to race there. And now they're like, the tracks that they built for 100,000, they can't put 50 in, so now they're taking away seats, and they're still not filling up. I don't know what NASCAR does when it comes to it until they get the product better. Lee, what are your final thoughts, Lee, on this whole, uh, you know, kind of attendance thing? Before I go in a different direction with Humphrey Wheeler's comments, because he had a couple of uh, things to say, and I want to get your opinion, you guys' opinion on, on rivalries next and why there's a lack they of got, rivalries in the Cup Series. But what are your thoughts, Lee? They got to figure this out before the next TV deal, because right now what's keeping this tra- sport afloat is the TV deals. That's what's keeping these racetracks afloat. Um, and, you know, we got to get people back to the racetrack because I think in, in the long run, when people show up, they'll be able to make money because once the TV deal falls out, I don't even want to think about it. You know, you're going to see – the first thing you're going to see closes is Dover, and you'll see – and maybe that, that's what the sport needs. Is that you'll see a bunch of races that aren't making money get chopped from the schedule, but my fear is it'll be a track like Martinsville or a track like Richmond and not tracks like Michigan. Because Kansas makes money, like John said, even though the racing stinks there, it makes money. So it'll be a track like that. And to me, that's that's not good. I think it'll hap- it's got to happen before the TV deal is even close to being done. Because we've talked about this in the past, the next generation of owners. Jack Roush is old. And someday, unfortunately, Jack's going to pass. Roger Penske's 80. Richard Petty's 80. Rick Hendrick's in his 70s. Richard Childress is in his 70s. The old guard ownership and who knows what they're going to do whenever they go. Is there a succession plan? Who's going to take those teams over? Who's going to be the ownership that'll drive the sport into the next generation? These guys are in the sport because they love racing. Jack Roush has been a race guy as long as you can remember. Roger Penske has been a race guy as long as you can remember. Rick, Rick Hendrick always wanted to be a race car owner and he turned into a real good one. Where's the next batch? It's not going to be the investment bankers coming in and backing somebody like Richard Petty has. You're going to see the racers aren't there because you can't build yourself a team and come up through the ranks and make it to the Cup Series anymore. Look at the Tommy Baldwins. Great racer, couldn't make it in the Cup Series, sold his charter. You're right. And to me, it's, you know, we've discussed it a lot. It's alarming, no doubt about it. I think, um, you know, maybe with this chartering system, it'll help negate that a little bit. Um, final topic, guys, I want to talk about tonight real quick is something Humpy Wheeler discussed, and that was the lack of personalities and rivalries. He said, you must have both. What would Ali be without Joe Fraser? What would the Redskins be without the Cowboys? Maybe one intense Rivalry currently in NASCAR that could compare with Petty Allison, Wallace Waltrip, Allison Yarbrough, etc. Um, first of all, Lee, I'll get your opinion before I let you go here. Why do you think there's a lack of rivalries in NASCAR? There aren't the rivalries anymore. Why do you think that? NASCAR's got nobody to blame but themselves for this. I mean, they did it. They're the ones. They are the ones that shut these guys up, and anytime anybody opened their mouth and had an opinion about anything, secretly find them and told them, you know, you got to act this way and act that way. And that, NASCAR is to blame, and, you know, maybe the sponsors of the race teams, but 
that's NASCAR is the main one to blame here. They have done this, worked hard at doing this, keeping everybody quiet, keeping everybody mute. You know, this is the problem. That is a major problem, and that's the problem. Nobody's allowed to say anything, and these guys go back into their motor coaches and you know the motor coach lots. They don't have to deal with each other anymore. It, it is, and and I think a lot of it also is teammates and alliances. You know. Half the field is a Chevrolet's are associated with Richard Childress Racing. I mean, I think that's a lot of it as well. But you know, there's no personalities because NASCAR has has worked hard at getting those guys out of here and making sure everybody has white gloves on and can't say anything. Uh, they need to, and you know, Monster's trying to change that, but it's going to take more than four months and a season to change it. One of the big problems I see is. The motorhome lot is a family lot. It isn't like it was where they would leave the track, go to their hotel room, and then come to back on Sunday, still ticked off if somebody did them wrong during practice. When they get done with practice, they go to the motorhome lot, and half the, t- half the drivers now have kids under 10. And their kids are buddies, and they're playing together in the motorhome lot. So they can't really be pissed off at each other and fight with each other when they see their kids out there playing at the MRO outreach facility, that's their basic daycare while they're racing, they go to school together. I mean, and plus the Alliance thing, it's one of those things where they're too close. Everybody's everybody's buddy. The only close thing we have to a rivalry is Joey Logano and Kyle Busch. That's the closest thing we have to a rivalry. And it's not really that much of one because they'll text each other two days later and everything will be fine. Yeah, and they're former teammates. But I think, and I've talked about this, I think, before, but I think the alliances have a lot to do with it. I think when you look at just the amount, how deep it goes, I think it absolutely has a lot to do with it. I mean, you think about the Ford teams, they all run the same engines. Um, so they all kind of try and help each other. So you say, well, oh, it's just the Ford teams. They could still be rivalries against the Chevrolets and the Toyota teams. But you're eliminating 13 potential rivalries there between the Ford teams. Um, you know, the Chevrolet teams, there's two really big-time Chevrolet teams, Hendrick Motorsports and Richard Childress Racing. And then you've got the Toyota camp, which is all basically in bed together. Um, so I do think that has a lot to do with it. And I think these drivers sit there and go, well, I don't want to say bad about Hendrick Motorsports because I might be able to get the Owen Hart Jr.'s ride when he retires. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with it. I don't want to take them, those guys off. You know, we used to have, you know, I, we're far from the days in 1981 when, you know, Darrell Waltrip goes to Junior Johnson and half the team leaves because they hate Darrell Waltrip. We're far from the days from that. Um, so, to me, absolutely. I think it is these guys, you know, these, you're not a team, you know, not that they're not teams anymore, but uh, they switch teams so much. Even the people who work on these race cars, they all kind of work on four race cars together. It's just completely different. And I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, I want to thank John Harlow from SpeedwayMedia.com. Lee from Virginia, you're a great caller. You help us out a lot. Uh, we'll see you here next week on Talking Circles. Good night, everybody.